Welcome to another lovingly chosen rerun episode of the Best of the Left podcast for the Holy Day vacation to keep you in a depressed mood about the economic state. With clips today from The Young Turks, Countdown, On the Media, The Onion Radio News, Comedian Lee Camp, The Tom Hartman Program, The Majority Report, and NPR. The Center for Responsible Lending and CreditSlips.org found out that major banks are actually behind these predatory uh, payday loans. And this is something that we have talked about on the show before. The payday loans are horrible. They're horrendous. Basically, what they do is they take advantage of vulnerable individuals uh, who need money and they need it fast. And they loan out the money with ridiculous APRs. For instance, I'll give you an example that I looked up. Uh, there is a payday loan company known as Western Sky. If you are looking for a $1,500 loan, they will actually immediately ask you for $500 up front. Uh, as a loan fee, which well, is so cool stupid. Is, what's cool is you can go borrow that from another place that doesn't ask for a fee to pay for your new loan. Yeah, you could do that. Well, that's basically what these yeah. people are doing. It has a name. It's called churning. Yeah, churning, exactly. Yeah. So you immediately have to pay back $500, and your APR, and I'm not making this up, is 234.25%. It's, it's incredible. They're, they're, they were talking about average interest rates of 455% yes. in this. Can you imagine? Yeah, I, I can imagine. It's happening all over the country. And it's not these little independent companies. It's actually the big banks using these companies as another way to profit. Okay, Because right, these, these companies have to get the money from somewhere. They do. Go get a low interest loan from a bank because you're solvent and take that and give it to people, pass it on down to the people. It is basic, I mean, screwing the, the poor. Absolutely, yeah, the and that's people. what happens again and again. Who cares if, you know, we took taxpayer money to get us out of this economic disaster that we created ourselves. Let's go turn around and screw them over as much as we possibly can. So let me give you some of the numbers uh, that we found. Uh, major banks provided over $1.5 billion uh, in credit available to fund major payday lending companies. So they're spending a ton of money uh, when it comes to these payday companies. Uh, the major banks indirectly fund approximately 550,000 payday loans per year, totaling $16.4 in short-term payday loans. And again, I love that you mentioned churning because it, it, it is a vicious cycle. They take out these loans and they realize maybe it helps me in that very minute to pay a certain bill, but at the same time, I'm digging a deeper right. hole because now I have to pay this massive interest. Exactly. It's and, and that's what happens to people who have multiple credit cards. It's no different. You take out a credit card, mm -hmm. you get too far in debt, you take out another credit card because you're, if you keep your payments up, your credit rating isn't hurt. You take out another credit card, you take a cash advance off of that to pay this credit card. And, and that's, that's exactly what's happening here. But it's happening to working people who are getting an advance on their salary and by the time their next paycheck comes, it's already spoken for because they have to pay back these payday loan companies. And then the big banks are getting money, shockingly getting money, from these payday loan companies. Right. Uh, the last thing that we found from the story is that all of these above-mentioned banks receive TARP. Uh, I mean, that's obvious. But, yeah. uh, again, they take our taxpayer money when they need it. They turn around they screw us over. It's yeah. unbearable. And the government says that they're going to do something to regulate this and take care of it, but they've been very slow in doing so. Right. So these payday companies are 
all over the place, all throughout the country. They continuously uh, lend out this money at these really high interest rates, and people keep digging themselves in deeper and deeper debt. Yeah, I mean, in rescuing the banks, you were obviously supporting the bad with whatever good you think may have been part of rescuing the banks, and there was good reason to do so, and keeping our financial institutions solvent and trustworthy prevents a run on the banks, and as little as I know about the economy, a run on the banks, not good. Uh, and, And the fact that those banks were rescued, but the fact that they were rescued without any sort of rules attached to that rescue that they were just it was just all right you, you need 100 bucks here's 100 bucks go do whatever the hell you want with it this kind of stuff happens when they're you know that there's just this lack of regulating what the banks want to do i was a man who learned such a thing cut off his hand to spite his ring poison the well to spite the frogs put down his song to spite the dough Cut out his sleep to spite his dreams Picked all the flowers to spite the bees He burned his Bible to spite the lows Took a day off to lick his wounds Loud and swear Life is such a wretched affair I'm gonna hold my breath To spite the air So we were able to go uh, join with Ron Paul, who introduced legislation to accomplish just this 26 years earlier Mm -hmm. and get a full and complete audit of the Federal Reserve, uh, which has now shown uh, $16 trillion in money lent out directly from the Federal Reserve to institutions, various institutions, including many foreign institutions. About a third of the money, it turns out, went to foreign institutions. And then on top of that, another $10 trillion in currency swaps between the Federal Reserve and foreign central banks which they had no way to recover if the foreign central banks weren't able to get the money back themselves. So altogether, $26 trillion of bailouts just in those two categories, not including TARP, not including FDIC financing of U.S. institutions, $26 trillion, that's almost $100,000 for every man, woman, and child in America, all done by the Federal Reserve without any act of Congress authorizing it. What they did is they took our money, the U.S. dollar, the fact that they control the currency, the fact that they have support, control of the money supply, and for the first time in history, and I'm talking about in the 100-year history of the Federal Reserve, they played favorites. Mm-hmm. They said, we'll give $100 trillion to this institution, $100, tr- uh, sorry, $100 billion to this institution, another $100 billion to this institution, and so on down the line, when you and I couldn't even come close to accessing those, that kind of money on those terms. They lent out this money at 0.01 percent interest. 0.01 percent interest. Go try to get a loan like that from your bank. It was corporate welfare, pure and simple, and what they were doing is they were playing around with the value of the money in your pocket and the money in my pocket. They were taking the U.S. dollar and playing Russian roulette with it, giving it out in enormous staggering sums in the hope that they might get it back. Well, they did get most of it back, but what about next time? What the GAO audit shows is that the Fed cannot explain why they chose one institution over another institution. All that anybody had to do was make noises about liquidity, liquidity or, or stress, and somehow that would justify the transfer of billions of dollars of what amounts to your money and my money. You know, again, to give you a sense of what this is like, $16 trillion, $10 trillion, that's much more than the U.S. entire federal budget for the course of a year. 
In fact, that's more than all of the goods and services that we produce in the United States in the course of a year. The regional banks of the Fed are actually populated and controlled by the local banks. Mm -hmm. And all of these bailouts were actually administered by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which has on its board many Wall Street executives. I'm talking about current Wall Street executives, not the Tim Geithners of the world, the people who used to be or, or in the future might work for Wall Street, but the current Wall Street executives actually on the board making decisions about who would get what for themselves. This week on Bloomberg.com, some blockbuster revelations. For the past three years, Bloomberg News has been battling the Federal Reserve in court to find out crucial details about the Fed's lending during the financial crisis. Though the Fed did regularly release aggregates of overall lending, it didn't disclose which institutions were borrowing or how much. Bloomberg finally won that case, and now we do know which institutions the Fed promised $7.77 trillion to, apparently with no strings attached and in fact earned some $13 billion on the deal thanks to the low interest rates. Bloomberg News' Bob Ivry is the first to say that Ben Bernanke's Fed is a more transparent Fed, but there's a difference between transparency and disclosure. True, the 2010 Dodd-Frank bill now sets a two-year limit on how long the Fed can hide these details, but when lawmakers were discussing regulating the banks during the last crisis, they were almost entirely in the dark. None of the senators or congress members that we spoke to uh, knew any of the details. So when we told them, for instance, that Morgan Stanley had borrowed $107 billion on a single day in 2008, or that Bank of America had borrowed $99 billion on a single day, or Citigroup had borrowed more than $90 billion, they were just as shocked as everybody else was. Legislators misunderstood the depth of the problem and so didn't find the courage to actually deal with it. I mean, it seems to me that that's the most serious fallout from the secrecy. What the Fed secrecy did was it allowed the biggest banks to get even bigger. One of our sources was former Senator Ted Kaufman of Delaware. He really pushed for legislation, along with Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio. The two of them, it was called the Brown-Kaufman Amendment, and it would limit the size of financial institutions. This was directly confronting uh, what many people believe is the main problem in the financial industry that has survived the crisis and gotten even worse. One of the arguments against the Brown-Kaufman Amendment was that it would be punishing success, meaning that these big banks got big because they're so good at what they do. And they turned around and spent money on lobbying Congress to defeat the Brown-Kaufman Amendment. Well, the numbers that we uncovered 
show that it is not success that made them big. What were the Fed's motivations for withholding this information to begin with? One of the functions of the central bank, Brooke, is to make loans to banks that can't get loans anywhere else. They're the lender of last resort. And in the lawsuit, the Fed, along with a group of the biggest U.S. banks called the Clearinghouse Association, said that if this data was made public, that banks would think twice about going to the Federal Reserve to get loans in an emergency. The banks were worried that there would be a stigma. That's right. If uh, counterparties knew about uh, their weakness, that they'd start pulling their money and there'd be a run on the bank. What the court said, however, was that the public interest in finding out about this data outweighed any embarrassment or possible bad effects that uh, disclosing the information would, would bring. But if we cast our minds back to 2008, there was a sense, and not a totally unfounded one, it turns out, that a depression was possible, maybe even imminent. So... Your article isn't an anti-Fed screed, is it? I, just like everybody else, like to get my money out of the ATM when I put my card in. And the fact that I was able to do that uninterrupted through the worst of the financial crisis is in no small part due to the Fed's actions. I want to say a couple things about that, though. And that is that one of the Fed's jobs is to supervise the biggest banks. And apparently, based on the evidence that we saw in 2008, they didn't do such a good job of that. And the other thing is that in a democracy, it's very important to have accountability, especially when you're talking about money with a capital T-R-I-L-L-I-O-N. It's really important to know where the money's going, and it's important to know how it's being spent and how it's being lent, where it's being guaranteed. And on that front, we had to battle for three years through the courts all the way to the Supreme Court to get this information. I know that when we mention the FCC, we fear that people's eyes will immediately glaze over. And I wonder whether the Federal Reserve does that for the longtime Federal Reserve reporter. What's gratifying to somebody who can talk about the Fed at a cocktail party and watch the seas part <laughs> is that more and more people are becoming aware of what's going on. One thing that's, that's really interesting for me is that this issue brings together the Occupy Wall Street people and the Tea Party folks. We received two tweets. One was from Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who is probably the most progressive congressman in Washington, and a tweet from Senator Rand Paul, who is a libertarian and wants to abolish the Fed. So you have, on both sides of the political spectrum, we're getting tweets in support of the facts that, that we have uncovered. This secrecy may have hampered lawmakers, and now these disclosures may be bringing the nation together in mutual hatred of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> what ultimately do you think is the most serious consequence of the lack of disclosure from the Federal Reserve. I think the legacy of the secrecy is that we have basically the same financial system we had in 2006. And the fact that we did not change things in the financial industry since the crisis makes it more likely that we're going to have a crisis in the future.
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. It's the Onion Radio News. A teenager learns the negligible value of a dollar. This is Doyle Redland reporting. After earning $5 for mowing his family's half-acre lawn, 13-year-old Andrew Mink of Ashland, Wisconsin, discovered just how little his money would buy today at the town sporting goods store. The young lad expressed his bitter disappointment to reporters. I kind of wanted a baseball glove, but that was almost 40 bucks. A new bat was like 65. Even a batting glove is more than 10 bucks. Mink finally managed to find a discounted wristband for $3.99, but was unable to afford sales tax on the item after reserving one dollar for the bus fare home. The dejected teen now plans to spend most of the summer sitting on his ass and watching ball games on cable. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at the Onion. I saw God on the with tears in his eyes. He said, son, I used to know where I put things. I used to know I could have shown All the beauty in the world But now I need you to show me Researchers at UC Berkeley found that wealthy people are less empathetic than uh, people who are in a lower socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason for that is because people who are rich just don't have souls. No, <laughs> no, it's official. It, along with people who have red hair, turns out the rich have no souls. It's in the study. No, look, empathy all has to do with, you know, whether or not you can relate to someone's experience through life. And with wealthy people, they don't have to go through the same obstacles as those who are in a low, lower socioeconomic status, right? So it's not because they're bad people. It's just that they haven't experienced those obstacles and they can't really relate. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting study because it's not even entirely that clear because uh, sometimes it's, a, uh, it's not psychological, it's a purely physical response. So, for example, when you feel empathy, apparently your heart slows down, your heart rate does, which, I, it was, which is also interesting, right? So poor people, middle class people, when they see, they're seeing a movie where somebody's getting hurt or somebody's in trouble, their heart rate slows down. Rich people, they're like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, whatever. They got a nice, fast heartbeat. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, everything's fine. What's the big deal, right? Right. Uh, now, we're, of course, oversimplifying, but that's largely what the study has found. And sometimes it's for people who've been rich all along, but it's also true of people who wind up becoming rich. Which I thought was the most surprising part of the study, because I would assume that if you have experienced, you know, living in poor conditions, you would be empathetic to 
toward those who are currently going through that. But probably the people who become rich are the people who think in their minds, like, well, I did it, so you can do it. Stop whining. Yeah, that's a possibility. Another possibility, and of course, it's probably a combination of all these factors, is that the guy who cares less about other people is more willing to step over them. Another possibility is that uh, the guys who had no empathy did better. You know, and that sucks, and I hope that isn't the case, but that's one of the possibilities of many different factors that probably all play together, uh, where they're like, oh, well, I don't care if I step over that guy to get to where I'm going. And of course, whatever you do with any of these studies, do not overgeneralize. Of course, it's not all rich people, and, and so it's just on average, etc. Wait, wait, we're missing the best part of this, too. Uh-huh. Across the board, regardless of what your socioeconomic status is, the, the scientists saw no difference in your level of satisfaction, happiness, uh, ability to enjoy life. I thought that was also really interesting. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, money does not necessarily buy you happiness is like the biggest cliche of all time. But it turns out it's actually true. Now, when you're poor and somebody says that to you, you want to punch them in the face, right? So that's, oh, no, no, it's okay. You know, it's on average. You're just like, oh, just shut up, man. Give me the money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I see fun. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. Clarity from LeeCamp.net. Picture roadkill. A really nasty mangled pile of possums splattered across the highway. Flies and bugs come to eat the entrails off the road. Then, while those flies are feasting, they shit on the carcass. That bug shit is then eaten by bacteria. Those bacteria eating the shit from the bugs eating the rancid roadkill. That's the level of a special kind of private equity group called a vulture fund. Vulture funds buy up the debt of desperate countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where drinking a clean glass of water is as rare as winning the lottery or meeting a non-creepy Scientologist. So these guys buy, let's say, $30 million of debt for $3 million from a corrupt third country. They then sue the Congo for $100 million. So any money the vulture collects comes from food or AIDS medication meant for starving people in Africa. Some people consider this whole practice morally vomitous. But listen, Everything is relative. Need is relative, you self-righteous assholes. Maybe that millionaire vulture feels he needs to own a helicopter as much as little Karame in Kinshasa feels he needs to eat something to survive. Or maybe Mr. Vulture's wife desperately wants a $7,000 bra made from the pussy hair of a rare ring-tailed lemur, and she wants it as much as a Congolese seven-year-old wants his cholera medicine. Who are we to say whose need is greater? Last week, one of these vultures actually responded to a charge that he's roadkill bug poop eating bacteria slime. His response was that the Congolese paying him a hundred million dollars in AIDS relief funds was good for the destitute country because it showed they were financially healthy. 
It's kind of like saying robbing someone's store is good for business because it shows that they have enough cool stuff to be robbed. It's like saying someone chopping off your manhood is good for your dating life because it shows other women that your dick is sought after. Or was sought after. And then at the clubs you can be like, yeah, baby, my dick's so good it was stolen. The Vulture also said, look, we have been exceedingly flexible with our offers to work out these claims. We've offered payment plans and even been willing to give a 66% discount. So imagine, your kids are starving. You have two sandwiches to give them to save their lives. Then an obese guy with a gold chain and a gun walks up and says, give me the sandwiches. You say no. He then says, well, okay. What if you give me one sandwich now and the other sandwich an hour from now and I let you keep a fucking pickle slice? Would you respond, oh my god, this guy is a saint. I thought Mother Teresa was dead, but no, she's right here in front of me. My own personal Oscar Schindler. Here's your sandwich, sir. I'll have the other one for you in an hour. And if you considered carrying condoms and wearing a cape, because you, sir, are a fucking hero. These vulture funds are yet another example of just how greed has run amok. It's truly amazing that these rich doucheheads are not ridiculed and detested, mocked and arrested, but instead these wealthy shit-digesting bacteria are well-respected mega-capitalists who might even live in your neighborhood. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Yesterday, the City of Los Angeles City Council voted unanimously to say Corporations are not people, money is not speech, and we encourage our elected representatives to pass a constitutional amendment to strip corporations of those rights. Corporations, uh, Walmart, for example, on various occasions, hog farms, uh, waste disposal plants, they've claimed 14th Amendment uh, uh, rights to say we're being discriminated against because we're a person. If you, the community says no, the tobacco companies, asbestos companies have used Fourth and Fifth Amendment protection and self-incrimination rights to to keep their crimes from us. And of course, the First Amendment right of free speech uh, that is uh, so uh, right at the core of of uh, Citizens United and whatnot. So. Step by step, and one of those steps has been taken by Congressman Keith Ellison, who's on the line with us, ellison.house.gov, of course, his website, the uh, congressman from the 5th District of Minnesota. Congressman, 
Welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program. Always good to be on with you, Tom. How you doing? Just great. It is great to have you with us. Congressman, you are an attorney. Yep. Um, and so I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the difference between a natural person and an artificial person, going all the way back to the 6th century in British common law. Absolutely. I have a passing familiarity. See, mostly natural persons. They, uh, they, 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 they love, they sometimes hate, they have a body that you can jail, they have a soul that you can save. Those are the clues you right. can go by. Yeah, there you go. And artificial <laughs> persons are basically governments uh, right. and corporations yeah. and churches. Yep. And and so uh, you have proposed a an amendment that would do what? Four things. And uh, one, declare that corporations are not people. Two, uh, state uh, that we have a compelling state interest, a compelling public interest to prevent corruption among elected officials. Mm. Uh, three, that uh, the ability uh, reinstates Congress's ability, along with states, to regulate funds used for political activity by for-profit corporations and similar entities. And then the last one, four, makes clear that no part of the amendment abridges the freedom of the press. So, one, corporations are people. Two, we have a pub compelling public interest in making sure we don't have corrupt public officials who can be corrupted by money mm -hmm. corporations. Three, uh, Congress can regulate these people. And four, uh, this does not affect freedom of the press. Yeah. And, and, in fact, reading from your amendment here, uh, because of the compelling public interest in preventing corruption and the appearance of corruption among elected officials and because corporations and other business organizations are not natural persons or citizens. They i got to say, God bless you for that, sir, because there are, as you, uh, I'm sure you know, I'm sure you've been lobbied on this, there are a number of groups, organizations, and people, some of them very well-intentioned, and some of them, I think, um, maybe working on the other side, mm -hmm. um, who are saying, oh, we don't need to deal with this corporate personhood issue. Uh, what we really just need to do is get the money out of politics. And and I'm saying, you know, yeah, getting money yeah, out of politics. The of the issue. Yeah, getting money out of politics is nice, but let's cut this, let's pull this weed out by the roots. Yeah, let's rip it out and uh, say that, uh, you know, first of all, the history on corporate personhood is actually not very old. I mean, these people basically gain their personhood status on the backs of newly freed um, slaves. Yeah. Uh, they basically uh, wedged their way in on the 14th Amendment uh, when they got the uh, court, the Supreme Court, uh, which was still sort of a, you know, sort of an antebellum Supreme Court, to sort of uh, w uh, to say that they're persons, yeah. to recognize them as having the rights thereof. You know, there was a time when a corporate charter was a, was a big deal, it had to be for the public interest. It had a very limited duration, and if they didn't serve that public interest, they had their corporate charter yanked. Yeah, I I wrote the first book on this, and it's I actually know. now the <laughs> unequal protection, and 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 I was amazed, you know, because I wanted to do um, research based on original sources. You know, everybody does. It, it, it's easy to write a book based on other people's books, mm -hmm. but I was going to do all original sources, and so um, I went down in Vermont. Uh, back this was in 1999, and I went into this uh, Supreme Court building, which is like you know older than the con older than our country. Vermont was a nation before it joined the the the, the rest of the union. Yep. And said to the uh, to Mr. Donovan, uh, to Paul Donovan, the, the 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 librarian, and he's also an attorney. I said, you know, I'd like to see that uh, 1886 uh, case where corporations became people. And he said, oh, you mean Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad? He pulls it out, gives it to me. I flipped through it, and I read the case. You know, it's like 16 pages long. Read it all the way through, and I said, I can't find anything in here where it says corporations are people. 
And he was like, well, it's got to be in there. I learned that in law school. And so he's flipping around, and he says, well, let's look at the head note. Right. And so we look at the head note, and here's the head note. It says corporations are persons under the 14th Amendment and entitled equal protection. And I'm like, where'd that, you know, and he's like, where'd that come from? And that's, you know, I got that into my book, that the court actually never ruled that corporations right. are people, that the clerk of the court wrote that, and he was a railroad president before he was the clerk of the court. And they totally, so they totally shoehorned their way into the position they have now from yeah. a legal standpoint. Yeah. And now, you know, we talk about like Frankenstein, you know, this is a monster we can't control, you know. Yeah. Yeah. This thing was designed, originally intended to be something that would serve the public interest, and now its only dedication is to serve its own selfish private interest and that of the shareholder and uh, to the to the detriment or disregard of the public interest, right? Well, and arguably, since the the I think it was the '30s, uh, Dodge v. Ford in, in the Michigan Supreme Court, mm -hmm. that's been pretty much kind of accepted the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. So, so Congressman Ellison, uh, this is uh, House Resolution Joint Resolution. I don't see a number on it here. Should be one there. Uh, let me let me. Okay, it's, we don't have a number yet. Well, I'll oh, okay. get you one as soon as we can. Okay, well, that's fine. But people we did drop it, and it's in, and uh, we should have a number real quick. Cool. So people can call, and they can they can call their members of Congress and just say, hey, sign out with Keith Ellison on this that's thing about corporate personhood. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Well, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, this I was I was obviously in, uh, aware of this whole mess before, well before corporate, uh, well before Citizens United, when I was in the Minnesota State Legislature, you know, of course, you know, I got exposed to the to your work, but then also there was a, there's a state legislator in Minnesota named Bill Hilty who turned me on to the idea of, you know, the problem of corporate personhood. Mm -hmm. And so this is a long-term and enduring problem that you kind of were, you know, kind of been heralding for many years, but now it has just gotten to the point where it's it's just really absurd. I mean, yeah. the corporate entity is like the most powerful entity in the world we live in, and, and, and it's surpassed well, in, all the state. You know, in Greece and in Italy, they have taken down the elected prime ministers and replaced them with appointed banksters. <laughs> oh my goodness! See, <laughs> I mean, you know you got problems there. Yeah, and yeah. and and you know, in Michigan, they did the same. You know, Governor Snyder did the same thing with the city of Benton Harbor. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, that is that is shocking, is it not? I mean, in Benton Harbor, they have said that you know they they have the authority to enforce the law. They are going to usurp people's rights, uh, and and let me tell you, this is this is uh, a foreshadowing of things to come unless we get wise right now and do something about this corporate yeah. personhood problem. Yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely. time to it's time to move a corporate uh, a constitutional amendment. I believe that this Occupy movement, which is a great thing in my view, has the power to really raise this issue and to make you know politicians do the right thing. Yep. I believe that. Um, but it's really we've really got to raise the roof on them because without a massive movement, you know, we, we these guys are just going to keep on rolling. Right. So, uh, you know, in essence, what we're trying to do is put the word natural before the word person in the 14th Amendment. Yeah. And this is a way to do it. And the way for all of our listeners and all of our viewers to participate is to call their member of the House of Representatives. Everybody has one and their two senators and say, get on board with Keith Ellison's proposal or his 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 uh, amendment to the constitution to strip poor corporations of their personhood rights yep that's it okay that's we got it. it we're on we're on it
small can a giant corporation get? I don't mean in size, but in spirit. Once again, America's biggest commercial empire, Walmart, is displaying its incredibly shriveled ethical center by whacking the already meager health care benefits that hundreds of thousands of workers count on. Just a couple of years ago, this $400 billion a year retailing colossus tried to hush critics of its Dickensian labor policies by ballyhooing a bare-bones health care plan for its associates. The insurance scheme had such high deductibles, however, that barely half of its employees bought into it. Now, even that benefit is being yanked from the 40% of Walmart's employees who are part-time workers. Also, insurance premiums and deductibles are being dramatically jacked up for thousands of full-time workers. For example, one full-timer, who's paid only $12,000 a year, will see her premium more than double to about $3,300 a year, a fourth of her income. I won't be able to afford the insurance, she says, and I really can't go without insurance because I have a heart problem. Top executives and the board of directors of this enormously profitable corporation also have a heart problem. They are taking advantage of America's raging unemployment crisis to stiff their workforce. Since these low-wage, non-union employees desperately need the jobs and have no power to stand up to the corporation's greed. A Walmart PR flack says that decisions to whack the workers, quote, were not easy, but they strike a balance between managing costs and providing quality care and coverage. This is Jim Hightower saying, care and coverage for whom? For the top executives, of course, they get full health care coverage from the corporation. How's that for boosting morale? And for morality. For more information, go to farrespect.org slash healthcare. Okay, what what do you think is the best thing, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is this, is this the, that hard of a question? Is it that is. What? It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right. Well, you know what? None of us know what the, what what's good about this show. What None we know is have... we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious. I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman show at davidpakman.com. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Yesterday we were telling you about the Republican tax plan. Uh, they've got a uh, you know, new idea. Hey, uh, you know, if you're a millionaire, we don't want to give you unemployment insurance, and we uh, don't want to give you as much Medicare or Social Security. Whoop the frickin' do, right? But we're going to cut your taxes by hundreds of billions of dollars. We're going to bring your uh, top rate down to 28%. You wind up with a net gain of over $700 billion. Uh, but these charts from Talking Points Memo uh, show you exactly uh, how the change affects their taxes. So let's show you the first one, graphic 20 here, right? Now, you will see a bunch of bars here. What this represents is, at the very bottom there, are your top income brackets on one side. And it starts at $200,000 or more. And that is going backwards, meaning that their taxes are significantly lower now. And the more money you make for the people making over a million dollars, their taxes are way lower. Everyone else, people making under $200,000, your taxes are higher under the Republican plan. 
so that Republicans don't mind raising taxes at all, as long as they're raising taxes on the middle class. Raising taxes on the rich is unacceptable. Now, how does that affect your after-tax income? Well, that's the next charge. And you will see, of course, the exact opposite. Your after-tax income, if you're making under $200,000, is going way down. And you see that? Actually, the middle class gets hurt worse than even the lower brackets. The middle class gets hurt the worst. You wind up with the least amount of money. But if you're rich, if you're above $200,000, or right there, oof, above $500,000, you're in the money, Lebowski. You get the best possible outcome. How do you like that for a Republican tax proposal? The rich get richer, and the poor get poorer. Literally. That's exactly what their proposal does. And they're like, can you believe the Democrats didn't immediately accept this? They're going to take a couple of days to accept it. Unbelievable. Why do you keep doing class warfare? What's the matter with you? You see this? These charts, they're not class warfare. They're just going to take your money and give it to the rich. If you complain about it, that's class warfare. And he's sitting at the table, the table he has set. He's begging for the courage to redeem some self-respect. Help him, Jesus, help him walk along the line. Because he feels he's getting old before his time. He says it takes a worried man to sing a worried song. It takes a worried man to sing a worried song. It takes a worried man to sing a worried song. He's worried now, but he won't be worried long. It's the Onion Radio News. A libertarian reluctantly calls the fire department. This is Doyle Redland reporting. After attempting to contain a living room blaze ignited by a cigarette, card-carrying libertarian Trent Jacobs of Cheyenne, Wyoming, swallowed his pride and called the Cheyenne Fire Department early today. Though insisting that his community would do better to rely on an efficient free market firefighting service, Jacobs explained his decision. The fact is that expensive, unnecessary public fire departments do exist. Also, my house is burning down. While wincing intermittently at the sound of his bullet collection exploding, Jacobs insisted that he has no intention whatsoever of paying the firefighters for their service. What's the most interesting part of this, that the, that the president pointed out the Republican hypocrisy in, in kind of bold terms, or that he said today what many of those on the left that he once derided said a week ago? Well, I, I, they're both sort of interesting, Keith, but I think that the most important point is that the president is pointing out very, very clearly for the entire country to understand the two pieces of hypocrisy here. Number one, uh, that the Republicans don't want to raise taxes on the rich, but that may require and mean that taxes are going to be raised on almost everybody else. Mm -hmm. But number two, that suddenly they are sort of born again, oh, you've got to pay for tax cuts. Tax cuts don't pay for themselves, when for years 
years, they've been saying just the reverse, that tax cuts will pay for themselves. And they, they can't have it both ways. And I think the president finally uh, is stepping up the plate. Uh, well, he's done it before, but I think he's doing it a little bit more boldly this time and saying, this is hypocrisy, folks. And I know Norquist absolved them last week. Is that the excuse that you know, Norquist said this is not a tax increase, therefore we don't have to call it one? Well, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for a lot of Republicans to uh, essentially uh, say, look, at, I, I, I'm not really, my hands are not really tied, I'm not really pledged to Grover Norquist, but uh, sotto voce to the Republican right, uh, oh, yes, I, I, I am pledged to Grover Norquist, and I won't really do anything uh, that makes Grover Norquist think that I have avoided the pledge. I, you know, Americans don't want to vote for people, uh, Republicans uh, in Congress or in the Senate or any kind of Republican, uh, for president, for that matter, who is pledged to somebody else. I mean, Americans want people who are pledged to them as Americans. Uh, and so it's becoming, this whole Norquist pledge is becoming increasingly uh, difficult, and you do hear Republicans get more and more defensive about this. Understandably. I, I, practically speaking, this, this cut affects uh, middle class and people below the middle class. Uh, what happens to the economy and these little tendrils of recovery that we've seen in the last few months if this thing expires. Uh, well, it, you've got two things going on right now that are built in, uh, and we all have, at least over the past year, I enjoyed them and expected them. One is this okay, payroll tax cut. And, Keith, you know, 80% of Americans pay more in payroll taxes than they do in income taxes. So this is a big deal, mm -hmm. and $1,000 on average per family, or for worker for that matter, uh, is a big deal for most families. Uh, the second is the extended unemployment benefits, and given how many people are actually still unemployed in this economy, that's important puts money in their pockets, they can turn around and buy things. And that creates jobs, or at least keep, keeps people in jobs. If the Republicans have their way, and neither of these is extended, neither the payroll tax nor the extended unemployment benefits, then it will be a tremendous fiscal drag on the economy. She moves like she don't care Smooth as silk, cool as air Ooh, it makes you want to as an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. For the second week in a row, the Senate voted down proposals to extend the payroll tax holiday through next year. This morning we're taking a closer look at some of the rhetoric around the Democrats' proposal to pay for the extension with a millionaire's surtax. Republicans argue this would hit small business owners particularly hard. NPR's Tamara Keith went out searching for millionaire business owners who would be affected, and the results of that search might surprise you. In the latest proposal... Democrats would cover the cost of the payroll tax holiday with a 2% surtax on income over a million dollars a year. Virtually every Republican in Congress hates this idea. How do you create new jobs by taking more earnings away 
from the very employers that are creating the jobs. We don't believe that now is the time to raise taxes on small businessmen and women. That was Arizona Senator John Kyle and House Majority Leader Eric Cantor of Virginia. The argument is that many small business owners report company profits on their individual taxes because of the way their businesses are structured. South Dakota Republican Senator John Thune says the surtax would hurt their ability to hire. It's just intuitive that, you know, if you're somebody who's in business and you get hit with a tax increase, it's going to be that much uh, harder, I think, to, to make investments that's gonna, that are going to lead to job creation. We wanted to talk to business owners who would be affected. So NPR requested help from numerous Republican congressional offices, including House and Senate leadership. They were unable to produce a single millionaire job creator for us to interview. So we went to the business groups that have been lobbying against the surtax. Again, three days after putting in a request, none of them was able to find someone for us to talk to. A group called the Tax Relief Coalition said the problem was finding someone willing to talk about their personal taxes on national radio. So we put a query on Facebook, and several business owners who said they would be affected by the millionaire surtax responded. It's not in the top 20 things that we think about when we're making a business hire. Ian Yankwit owns Tortoise Investment Management, a boutique investment firm in White Plains, New York. He has 10 employees and in recent years has done a lot of hiring, which means a lot of discussions about hiring. And not once in any of those conversations did what my ultimate marginal tax rate, that didn't even make it on the agenda. Yankwit says deciding to bring on another employee is all about return on investment. Will adding another person to the payroll make his company more successful? For Jason Berger, the motivation is similar. If my taxes go up, I have slightly less disposable income, yes, but that has nothing to do with what my business does. What my business does is based on the contracts that it wins uh, and the demand for its services. Berger is co-owner of CSS International Holdings, a global infrastructure contractor. Berger says his company is hiring like crazy, and he'd be perfectly willing to pay the surtax. It's only fair that uh, I put back into the system that is the entire reason for my success. For the record, both Berger and Yankwit have made campaign contributions to Democrats in the past, but they say their views on the surtax are about the economics of their businesses, not their politics. Deborah Schwartz owns LAC Group, an information management firm, and she too supports the surtax. I, like any other American, especially a business owner, I want to make as much money as I can and I want to keep as much money in my pocket as I can. But I also believe in the greater good. Short says, surtax or no, she hopes to keep hiring. We're going to keep on writing proposals, going after contracts, hopefully winning them, and when we do, we're going to continue to hire people. All of this contradicts the arguments about job creators being made by Republicans in Congress. What does Senator Thune make of this? Those, I would say, were exceptions to the rule. I think most small business owners who are out there right now uh, would argue that you know raising their taxes has the opposite effect that we would want to have uh, in a down economy. But those small business owners apparently don't want to talk. Tamara Keith, NPR News, The Capitol.
President Obama has come out and been very strong. Well, you look at that. Uh, after the House said, hey, we're not going to do the compromise that the Senate came up with on your payroll tax cut, and that was an 89 to 10 vote in the Senate, 1 million percent bipartisan. Actually, technically, that is obviously not 100 percent bipartisan, but it is as bipartisan as it ever gets in, uh, in Washington. And they kick it over to the House, and the House had this goofy meeting where they all started quoting Braveheart. And then they come out and they go, okay, that's it, man. We're not going to do it. We're like William Wallace, but for the rich. It's awesome. So uh, they block it. And you think, well, we already did the compromise to get to the deal in the Senate. Now they want you to do another compromise uh, so that you agree to the House what the House Republicans want. And I would have thought if the movie was playing out as it normally does, then President Obama would come out and say, oh, my God, I don't know what I could do. Call G, okay. I'm going to do another compromise. But you know what? He didn't. He didn't. He came out and he said, no, we're not going to do that. I was supposed to go to vacation in, uh, you know, in Hawaii with my family, where, where he's from, obviously. And he said, we're, I'm not going. They've left. But I'm going to stay here and I will do no further compromises on this. Now, part of the reason that he is emboldened like that is because the poll numbers are moving up for him. He's moved into the high 40s now. His poll numbers have been improving over the last couple of weeks. This And congressional approval rating, as I've told you before, is sliding down. It's down to a record low of 11%. So basically, Obama, even he sees what an enormous gift this is politically to him. And look, I want to be fair to him because he's doing the right thing here. But I, I also want to say, like, even Obama can't blow this, right? <laughs> okay, anyway, so... He's like, all right, well, look, man, I'll keep busting you up all night long. Okay, you don't want a deal? Okay, fine, no deal. You're about to raise taxes on, uh, on just about every single family in the country that pays the payroll tax. That's almost everybody, right? That's employed. So the Republicans are in really bad shape on it. And, of course, since they don't understand anything, the House Republicans are like, well, we lost? Great. Okay, let's go home. And they've gone home. So it looks like they're going to go into Christmas and, and get to the January 1st, and the payroll tax is going to go back up. Uh, not only do I think they're playing it wrong, apparently the Wall Street Journal thinks that they're playing terribly wrong. Remember, Wall Street Journal, their editorials are basically what the Republican Party stands for. It's uh, run by Murdoch. He basically speaks for and through his propaganda controls the Republican Party. And he's telling these knuckleheads, no, you morons. We'd already agreed to this. Now, he, even he thinks, even the Wall Street Journal thinks, and even all conventional wisdom for the first time in history has decided that the Republicans have played it wrong. So get a load of the Wall Street Journal. They say, Republicans should have put together a strategy and the arguments for defeating it and explain why. So in other words, they didn't want the payroll tax. They don't want it, right? And they're like, ah, oh, it goes to the middle class. We don't want that. But they continue. But if they knew they would eventually pass, pass the legislation, as most of them surely believed, then they had one of two choices, either pass it quickly and at least take some political credit for it. I love that. You know why? Because there's the Wall Street Journal saying, look, we hate it. We know you hate it because it goes to the middle class. It doesn't help the rich at all. But if you were going to agree to pass it, which we know you will at some point, you should have at least pretended to be in favor of it, pretended to be in favor of the middle class. Well, they're actually not hiding it very much. They continue with their blunt political advice. They say, or at least 
agree on a strategy to get something in return for passing it, which they, the Senate side had done. Senate Republicans got the Keystone oil pipeline deal in it. They got other things as well. But that was the one the Wall Street Journal pointed out, like, yes, more dirty oil to the U.S. See, at least that was a win. Why didn't you get something? Um, they continue. But now Republicans are drowning out that victory that they could have had, for example, on the Keystone oil pipeline in the sounds of their circular firing squad. In other words, the Republicans have totally botched this. They have lost. They conclude by saying at this stage, Republicans would do best to cut their losses and find a way to extend the payroll heartache quickly. It has been a long, long time since I saw conventional wisdom in Washington say, yes, the Republicans screwed this up and the Democrats played it well. I literally can't remember the last time they said that. Camp.net. 23% of corporations have been convicted of a crime. The FBI issues a detailed, well-publicized, well-researched report on crime each year. They strut out there and they say, here it is. We crunch the numbers and here are your bad guys, your assholes, your bridge trolls, your walking viruses. And look at the amount of harm they've done. And you know what? I thank the FBI for that. But then last year, the FBI slipped up and left corporate crime out of the report. They didn't mention it at all. Oh, wait, that's every year. Every year, the FBI has forgotten to mention the John Madden after Thanksgiving dinner-sized bag of reports on corporate criminals, gangsters with ties on, thugs with cufflinks. Surely not every year. Every fucking year. On average, all burglary and street crime adds up to four or five billion dollars. On average, corporate crime is in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. And that doesn't count loopholes and sketchy practices that are technically legal, but smell like a rotting rat carcass bathing in French onion soup. Leaving that stuff out of the crime reports is like listing oil spills and leaving out the Exxon Valdez. It's like listing terrorist attacks of the 90s and leaving out the Macarena. It's like listing all of the accomplishments of the Make-A-Wish Foundation and leaving out the rise of David Cameron. It's like listing the best running back of the past hundred years and forgetting to mention Muhammad Ali. I'm, I don't know sports. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know sports. And yet we let these corporate criminals continue to operate. We don't do this in other areas of our lives. In order to have a broadcasting license, you must be of sound moral character, and the FCC can take away that license if you've been convicted of a felony. We don't let child molesters continue to serve as teachers at our schools. We don't let bestialites like Newt Gingrich own a petting zoo. Yet we let corporate criminals continue to run our corporations. We need to name these criminals. We need to see them marched out in a criminal lineup. And the country should be asked, 
Which of these men touched you in the 401k? Which of these men fondled your mortgage and violated your IRA? You know, there's a website that shows you every registered sex offender living in your neighborhood. Let's do the same with corporate criminals. White collar crime is only different from on the street crime in scale. One steals your phone, the other steals your hope. These people shouldn't be allowed to go back and start all over again. Thanks for listening, everyone. That is it for this episode as well as the year 2012. Certainly hope you enjoyed a couple of, uh, you know, lovingly, as I say, lovingly selected rerun episodes. I liked them when they came out the first time, so I thought they were worthy of being played again to fill the gap here during the vacation. But stay tuned. I'll be back to uh, regularly scheduled programming coming out every third day starting after the new year. But until then, just want to thank everyone for listening. Thank all those who support the show by becoming either a member or making one-time donations or using the Amazon search box. Uh, all of those things certainly help with the show in a very direct way. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. All that can be done through the website itself. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, usually, except for vacations. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor